Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 1. We started a series last Wednesday night on the Gospel of John. And um, um, it really wasn't my intent to go through verse by verse, but it looks like that's the way we're going to do it. Um, John's got 20 chapters, so... <laughs> we're not sure if we'll finish this before the rapture or not. Uh, I, uh, I, I really... Um, well, the, the first part's going to go slower than some of the rest of it. Just, I'm saying that for my own sake as much as anything else. Um, I, did, I did not, I do not really intend to, to belabor um, certain things and see how long this can take us. I, I really don't uh, so much enjoy having never-ending series. Um, but um, I, I, I need you to believe God with me. Because um, I've got... Three pages of notes. I'm dusting off notes that I haven't looked at since Bible school 32 years ago. And uh, I'm getting more out of it than I did in Bible school 32 years ago. And uh, like I said, as I began to say, I've got three pages of notes. If you you know anything about me, I don't preach from notes. Um, I I just never learned that way. But I've got three pages of notes, and that usually means it's three pages full of stuff that I think are important to say. And if I say everything in uh, that... um, that I think is important to say in one service, we'll never get out of here. So I, I'm not really sure what to do, whether it's to, to go slow and take our time and, and um, you know, squeeze every drop out of it, so to speak, or hit the high spots. I'm kind of trusting the Lord. Well, not kind of trusting the Lord. I am trusting the Lord to, um, uh, to direct us as we go because it's not my intent to, uh, to just throw a lot of information out there. You can drown in information. But what I want to do is I want to speak to things in the Gospel of John that are the most important for us to hear to minister life to our hearts. So trust God with me on this, and, um, and we'll see where we go. Uh, the Gospel of John is a little bit different. We'll, uh, we'll cover a little bit of the ground we did last week just for the, the continuity's sake. The Gospel of John is different from the other uh, three Gospels. The other three Gospels uh, portray Jesus in His humanity. Uh, the theme of Matthew is uh, the king of the Jews. The theme of Mark is the servant of Jehovah. The theme of Luke is the perfect or ideal man for redemption. The theme of the book of John is totally different. It's, it's uh, looking at, at uh, Jesus from a totally different perspective. The theme of the gospel of John is the deity of Jesus, the fact that he is the son of God. John is uh, identified and described in Acts chapter 4 along with Peter as an ignorant and unlearned man. Remember in Acts chapter 3, it talks about how the band at the beautiful gate was, uh, was healed. A lot of people got saved as a result of that. And the uh, Jewish council, the same group that crucified Jesus just a couple of months before, called them on the carpet and questioned them. And it, the Bible says specifically they took knowledge of them that they were two things. Number one, ignorant and unlearned. That means uneducated. That means stupid. It just means uneducated. And then secondly, they took knowledge of them that they'd been with Jesus. Well, the style of John's gospel is different from the other three. You can tell that uh, from the style and the writings and the, the, even some of the language that's used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that all three of those guys were educated men. John's real simple. He just says things from a conversational point of view and um, uh, context, and, and it's, it's refreshing. But in the same breath that we need to say that, he says some things by the Holy Ghost that are the most profound of any of the gospel writers. A good example is how he begins. All the other uh, gospel accounts start with the, the, uh, the lineage of Jesus. 
and showing his natural birth and his right to, uh, to be called the, serv- the, the uh, descendant of David and so forth. John starts off in chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He talks about his, his divinity. He talks about his beginning with God. Now, let me, uh, let me kind of give you an overview. I'm not sure exactly how, long, how far we'll get tonight. But the first 13 chapters of John, of John chapter 1 is, uh, is the introduction to the, to the letter, introduction to the gospel. And in each of these verses, there is a, um, uh, a relationship of Jesus to something else that's identified. So let me give you the summary real quick, and then we'll, we'll go down through some of them. In verse 1, it shows the relation of God of Jesus to time, where it says in beginning. There's no the, there's no article there. It just says in beginning. Now, what beginning is that? Well, we're going to see that he creates. He's the creator of the earth, so beginning has to be before the earth was created. So when he's talking about beginning, he's not talking about Adam and Eve. He's not talking about when the earth was formed. He's talking about way, 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 way eternity before that. So he says in beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Also in verse 1, where it says He was with God, it shows His relationship or connection to the Godhead. He was with God. It identifies Him as a separate being from God, yet you're going to find out in the next thing, it says, it shows His relationship to the Trinity, it says that He was God. So we see a separate personality, we see separate entities being identified. The third thing, or I'm sorry, the fourth thing, I guess it is, in verse 3, it shows his relationship to the universe. All things were made by him. And not anything was made that was made. Verses 4 and 5 show his relationship to men. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. It shows that he was the light... The life and the light of men. Now, light is kind of a difficult word for us to, uh, well, it's easy to translate, but it's hard to understand what it, what it means. Because we use light in a lot of different ways. You can talk about, I saw the light. Well, that doesn't mean some, some, uh, the sun shining in the sky. It doesn't mean a light bulb popped in front of your face. It, we say that and use that word figuratively a lot of times. We're not sure exactly how John uses it. The Holy Ghost prompts him to use a word that can be translated a lot of different ways. Now, one thing that we do know and can, and can conclude from the way that it's used is that it's a contrast to darkness. So we have, to under, we have to assume that there is a spiritual component behind this. And again, the theme is Jesus is the Son of God. So it has to be a spiritual component, the light and the life of God that was in Jesus. We know he's the creator, so he's the originator of life. He's the originator of everything that was made in the universe. Every living being that was made here on the earth, Jesus created it. So he is the life of God. He is the very character, the very essence, the very nature of God. And that life was light. And then it says the darkness comprehended it not. Well, Jesus said himself, the whole world lieth in darkness. So he's got to be talking about spiritual darkness. So light can certainly be the contrast between life and death. It can be the contrast between revelation or understanding and darkness, confusion, and so forth. Light can also be considered the development of men because as the light comes on on the inside of us, Psalm 119 verse 165 says the entrance, or verse 130 I guess it is, says the entrance of thy words giveth light. Well, what does that mean? Well, when the light turns on on the inside, we develop, we take a step forward, we mature. 
So light could be maturity. It could be development. It could be any and all of these things. And I think it is all of these things. If it meant something specific that didn't include all of this stuff, then the Holy Ghost could have used any other words to describe it. So it says the life was the light of men. Now, the, the important thing here, in my opinion, is there is no light without Jesus. There is no light without Jesus. Now, remember, Paul or uh, John is not writing in a vacuum. He has a specific purpose in mind with his letter. It's the last letter, last of the gospel accounts that was written. It was written uh, in it, uh, much later than any of the others. It may have been written and probably was written after Peter and Paul have already gone off the scene. And so he has a specific reason to write this gospel account. There are already three other gospel accounts. They do a marvelous job in giving us information about Jesus' ministry. But Paul is prompted, or John is prompted by the Holy Ghost to reveal something that the others did not. He has a specific target audience. And so a lot of these things that he says and the way that he says them, he's being prompted by the Holy Ghost as we understand in comparing the epistles, the letters that he wrote to the church with the gospel that, that bears his name, we understand that there were things that were going on in the church world that not only do his letters, his epistles uh, deal with and address, but also some aspects of his gospel. So where he says the light, he's talking about the light, he's contrasting that with spiritual darkness, some of that spiritual darkness that spread into the ministry. Some of the spiritual darkness that is spread back into the church. He's not just talking about the darkness that was upon the earth before Jesus came. He's talking about and says things in such a way that they can be applied to the things that existed in these people's day. Some 50, 60 years perhaps after Jesus has gone off the scene. Well, not 50 or 60, but 40 years at least. So therefore... Well, I guess it could be 50 years. It'd be pushing 50 years, between 40 and 50 years. So it gives the, his relationship to men. Now, in verses 6 through 9, it shows his relationship to John the Baptist. And it says John the Baptist was the witness of his deity. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. Verses 10 through 13 talks about the relationship of Jesus to his reception. What happened when he came to the earth? Now, I want you to notice a couple of these. Verse 10 says, the world knew him not. Verse 11 says his own received him not. And verses 12 and 13 talks about others who received him. Now, in verse 10, it says the world uh, knew him not. It's interesting that they uses the contrast to the difference between the words knew and received. Because the world, the Gentiles, those outside of the, the descendants of Abraham, they didn't know him. They were ignorant, in other words. But the Jews, the children of Israel, rejected him. They received him not. And then finally, there was a group that did receive him. And those people that did receive him were the ones that were born of God. In other words, he says the way to receive him brings about uh, what we know of as the new birth. And John's the one that tells us about that in John chapter 3. So with that in mind, let's go through a little bit. We'll read down through some of these scriptures. I think we got down through about verse uh, uh, 5 or 6. Last Wednesday night, so we won't uh, spend much time before then. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. He mentions four times in two verses that Jesus was in the beginning and is equal with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's a little bit more interesting to me than to find out that He was the daughter of somebody way back in His lineage. Or does say daughter? He wasn't the daughter of anybody, was He? Sorry about that. 
All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in him was life, which was the key, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The word comprehend, we understand the word comprehend to be no. It means to know. That's not what this word means. It's, uh, it might be better translated. I think the English, uh, uh, Englishman's Greek New Testament translates it as apprehended. To be, meaning to overtake, where it says the darkness comprehended it not. It doesn't mean the darkness didn't understand it. It means the darkness couldn't overtake him. Jesus came into a world that was, that he was totally and completely separated from. In other words, God sanctified. I want to use this word and I want you to hear the word. God sanctified him through the manner of his birth. And that sanctification kept Jesus free from the, from the tentacles of sin and death, the tentacles, the characteristics, the byproducts of darkness all throughout his life. Now, the life that Jesus had in him when he was born into this world is the same life that you have in you and has the same sanctifying, separating, preserving power that it had in Jesus. If you just ex- uh, take advantage of what's there. So it says the the light uh, apprehended it not or comprehended it not, apprehended literally. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This isn't talking about the, the author of the book. This is talking about John the Baptist. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Now notice that phrase. He came to bear witness of the light. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Does it say, or let me point out that it does not say that he came to convince people that Jesus was the light? See, so many times people have the idea that bearing witness or, or, or trying to reach other people is to convince them that Jesus is the Son of God. And folks, please understand, everything comes down to Jesus being the Son of God. You've got a large, large, large population of the world that believes that Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, and whoever else is out there is on a par with Jesus because they're all great men. They're all founders of a religion. And in many people's eyes, it's all about, well, one religion is the same because they're all founded in the teachings of some great man. There's only one thing, only one thing that separates Jesus from any of the others, and that is Jesus was the Son of God. Now, you find somebody that knows all about world religions, and you start talking to them about Jesus, ask them this question. This is the question that they get stuck on. Was Jesus the Son of God? Most of the time, they'll say in their politically correct, tolerant manner, they'll say, well, I'm not willing to go that far. Well, folks, I would submit to you, if you don't go far enough to confess Jesus as the Son of God, you ain't going nowhere. Meaning when this world is over or your life is ended, your future is not very bright. Warmth is in your future, but not light. Do you understand what I'm saying? The thing that separates Jesus, the thing that separates Christianity from everything else is that Jesus is the Son of God, and that is the whole point of the 20 chapters that, that John writes by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So John came to bear witness of the light. That means, very simply, that the light was in the world, and John's saying the light is in the world. Now, put it in a natural context. Who do you have to convince that the light is on? Can't everybody see the light? Well, the people that you have to convince that the light is on are people that are blind. That's what John did. And, folks, that's the same work that we do to witness. We simply bear witness of the fact that Jesus is the risen Son of God. We tell people the light is shining. 
You don't have to convince anybody, but you have to recognize they're blind and can't see it for themselves. So don't think they're going to see it without somebody telling them or bearing witness that the light is here. That's what this is talking about. Verse 8, he was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. Verse 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, this does not mean that every person has a spark of divinity in them, as some religions teach. This just very simply means he is the source, the originator, the creator of the light or the spirit of mankind. Now, that light, remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, he said, Take heed that the light that is in you be not darkness. So Jesus uses the terms light and darkness to mean spiritual things. He uses the light meaning the spirit. He says, don't let your spirit be dark or spiritually dead. Take heed that you don't let the light be darkness. So he's not talking about the contrast of light and dark as we would think, you know, something bright versus something that's dark. He's using that to mean spirit. He's saying, take heed that your spirit is full of light and the entrance of God's word gives light. Now, it's also interesting that the Bible says that John says by the Holy Ghost that he was the true light. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says that Satan himself is trans, uh, transformed into an angel of light. Now, the context that he talks about in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11 is he's saying, beware of false apostles and false teachers and false apostles and so forth. Because the ministers of Satan are transformed into ministers of righteousness. So he's saying you need to know the truth so that you're not deceived. The fact that he speaks of the light as being the true light. And I believe this is something that John deals with because of what's going on in the church at the time that he writes it. And the Holy Ghost prompts him to deal with it in such a manner. He said he was that true light. That true light. Now what does true light mean? Well the first thing it means is he was an undeceiving light. The second thing that it means is he was the real light. Now think about this. Up until this point in time, until Jesus came into the earth, the only thing that the people of Israel knew about God, and the world knew nothing about him, but the only thing the children of Israel knew about God were Old Testament types and shadows. Well, you don't get a real clear picture of something by looking at its shadow. But Jesus is the true light. He shows what God really is. We'll cover more of that as we go a little bit further. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Now, notice what John deals with next in verse 10. He talks about Jesus being the creator of the world. Folks, think about this. God's plan from the beginning was that Jesus would come into the earth. Jesus, the creator of the universe, would come into his creation. Now, what a wonderful event that should have been. What a marvelous time. What a marvelous uh, occurrence For God to come to the earth into his own creation, mankind, knowing that he's spiritually bereft, knowing that he's spiritually dead, knowing that there's no goodness in him at all, knowing that that, that, that he's without hope other than a redeemer. At least the children of Israel knew that. Maybe the world isn't focusing on that. But But mankind as a whole, knowing that there is nothing that they can access God through or by, misses out on everything that happened. Now, why? It says they knew him not. They were in ignorance. But why were they in ignorance? Because they were so devoted to their own plans, their own schemes, and their own pursuits that they missed out on the most significant event in the history of the universe. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Full of selfish schemes and pursuits, the world thought nothing of Jesus. Now, folks, has that changed today? 
It's amazing to me how some people can be so blind to eternity when you look at the signs that are going on around us. I'm talking about Christians. Now, I guess that really deals with the next verse where it says he came into his own, meaning his own people, and his own received him not. They rejected him. They flat out rejected him. And in every gospel other than John's, you'll find out that about halfway through, when it becomes clear that Israel has rejected Jesus, Jesus turns to the Gentiles, and the, the last half of those gospel accounts are primarily Jesus ministering to the Gentiles. He came to the Jews first, the Jews rejected him, and then he went to the Gentiles. Not so with John. He starts off with the Gentiles. He starts off ministering to everybody. He mixes and mingles different events where he's ministering to the Jews, where he's ministering to the Gentiles. It's all a hodgepodge because as far as John is concerned, the Holy Ghost leads him to, to identify that Jesus was the Son of God that was sent to save the world, not sent to save the Jews. Remember, that's what the, that were the Jews, uh, was the Jews' original uh, or first response to Jesus. When they saw Jesus was doing miracles, the Pharisees and Sadducees first went to Jesus and they said, come be one of us. We like this miracle stuff. Come be one of us. And Jesus wouldn't do it. He wouldn't, the Bible says Jesus wouldn't commit himself to them because he knew no man. In other words, he came for the world rather than just the Jews. Well, the only reason they wanted Jesus to be one of them is so that they could take credit for the work that he was doing and make a name for themselves. Not because they really cared about what he was saying or what he was doing or how he was sent to help people. It was all political for them. It was a career choice. It wasn't about helping people. He came into his own and his own received him not. Verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, what was God's intent? God's intent was to send Jesus to the world and the world accept him. God's intent was to send Jesus into the world and, the, and Israel, the seed of Abraham, those that have heard the prophecies of their forefathers from times of old, hundreds and hundreds of years before, talking about how the Messiah would come, talking about how God would provide a sacrifice, talking about all these things and all the different Old Testament prophecies that were prophesied about Jesus, that he would be the seed of a woman, that he would be the servant of Jehovah, that he would be a prophet like unto Moses. All of these point to a man coming to the earth. And many others. All these prophecies that the Jews knew about and were taught in the synagogues. It points to a man coming to the earth. So a man comes to the earth and does works and miracles and healings and different things like that. That they've never hit, seen or heard from anybody. And what happens? The religious leaders, the ones that should know the most about the prophecies, should have been alerted first and foremost above everybody else, should have said, wait a minute, this is what the, the Old Testament prophecies were talking about. Could it be that this is the guy? They didn't even care. The only thing they cared about is that he talked about things that cut, that cut into their piece of the pie. The only thing that he, they cared about was that he spoke against some of the things that they were doing to control the people and keep their own place. So what happens after God's counsels, God's plans were detoured? Were they done away with? No. Verses 12 and 13 are about that. It says, but as many as received him, there were those that received him. You and I make up that number too. To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born. How do we get this power to become the son of God? Because we were born. There's a new birth that takes place. There's a recreation that takes place, which were born not of blood, meaning not of the seed of Abraham. Paul said, writing to the Romans, he said, not all Israel is Israel. Now, that 
is a little confusing to some people when they don't understand what he's talking about. But he goes on to explain, he says, natural Israel is not spiritual Israel. He talks about the seed of Abraham not being those that are natural descendants of, of, uh, of Abraham, the Jewish people at large. He says spiritual Israel are those that have accepted Jesus because Jesus is the seed of Abraham, not a seed, the seed of Abraham. So therefore, Israel, real Israel, and the one to whom the promises are made, the spiritual promises at least, are made, are those that have accepted Jesus and therefore by birth become a part of that spiritual line. So here where it says they were born again, not of blood, it means not of the seed of Abraham, the natural descendants of Abraham, nor were they born by the will of the flesh. It's not because somebody chooses by their flesh, here's what I want it to be, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, God's the one that came up with this plan. Folks, you need to realize something. God wants you saved more than you want to be saved. God wants you healed more than you want to be healed. God wants you prosperous and free from all the power of the devil more than you want to be. We think that it has to do with our will. We think it has to do with, and, and, and operating in faith has something to do with the will. There's no question about that. But we get so bogged down with stuff like this, and we get so tied up with the ritual of, of faith and the, the activity of believing in your heart and saying with your mouth that I think a lot of people get caught up thinking it's, it depends on how much I want it. It depends on how much I want it. Well, it doesn't depend on how much you want it. How much you want it will affect what you do and how active you are in your faith. But the reason that it works is because God wanted it. And whether you ever do anything to receive what Jesus has done or not, God still wanted it. And that's what this is talking about. It happened. People become the, uh, the, or receive power to be the sons of God because God willed it. And then in verse 13, or verse 14 rather. Now, verse 14, we could take the whole time, either the rest of tonight and all of next week, and even longer than that, talking about this, because this verse is just chock full of stuff. Verses, 13, verses 1 through 13 are the introduction. Now, verse 14 starts talking about something else. Now, notice in, um, uh, in chapter, uh, in verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. Now it says, And the Word was made flesh. These are two different words translated was. Now, this may seem to be too much detail, but I think it's important at least for you to hear it. There are two different words that are translated was in, uh, well, really throughout the New Testament. One of the words, the word that's used in verse 1, means to exist. In the beginning existed the word. The word that's used in verse 14, as well as some other places, even in the first chapter, it says, and the word uh, was made flesh. Literally, it means that word means to come into being meaning the word became flesh. But it uses was in both sense. The first was, was existed, means existed in the, from the beginning. The second means here's something that came to pass. Here's something that transpired. And it says, the word became flesh. Now, why did the word become flesh? Why was it necessary for Jesus to come to the earth? And remember, John, is everything he does is to, to develop the theme that Jesus was the Son of God. Everything about this gospel is Jesus is the Son of God. Why? Why did he come to the earth? Why did he have to be made flesh? There's a couple of reasons. Number one, it was necessary for man to have a sacrifice. That sacrifice necessitates the death of a Savior. If Jesus doesn't come to the earth, he can't die. Jesus knows from the beginning that he came to the earth for one purpose, and that is to save the world from, from his sins, to die on behalf of the world. 
He's got to become flesh in order to be able to die. Now, we've got a whole different uh, concept about how can God die. But the answer to that is very simple. He cannot unless he empties himself of his divinity, meaning his heavenly power and glory. Now, there's a difference between the nature of God and the power of God. The Bible says in Philippians that Jesus emptied himself. He laid aside his heavenly power and glory. That means everything that Jesus has been described in in the first uh, three verses, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That tells us that Jesus had, uh, had preexistent power, inherent power. He was one with the Godhead. He's one of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, uh, God the Word, and, and God the Holy Ghost. They're all co-equal, co-equal in power, co-equal in position. Jesus laid aside that power. He laid aside that position in order to be able to come to the earth. Now, he didn't stop being God because it was still him, but he laid aside his inherent power. Now, how can God do that? Because he's God. It's a real poor comparison, but it'd be just as easy for somebody that's born of some great family, some rich family or something like that, somebody of great great wealth, great stature, great uh, position in this life. It would be very easy for them to lay aside that position, lay aside that power, lay aside that wealth, and live as someone on a much lower level of much less means. They wouldn't stop being who they are. Their name would be the same. Whether they change their name or not, they're still the same person. But they lay aside everything that came with that name. They lay aside everything that came with that family they were born into. And instead, they would live in a lower state. That's what Jesus did when he came to the earth. That's why it says he humbled himself to become a man. Folks, when you compare man on the earth with God in the beginning, there's a little bit of a difference there. Huge difference. That's what he did. He became of low estate. Now, that's going to be important when we see other things that John says. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh, number one, because it it was the only thing that made Jesus able to die. He can't be our savior if he doesn't die. The second thing is, it's the only way for Jesus to be touched or God, God as a whole, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And Jesus is the one that is. Now, let me ask you a question. How can the Father, how can the Father God in heaven relate to you being tempted with sin? How's that possible? The Bible says very clearly in James chapter 1, let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man with evil. If God can't be tempted with evil, how does he relate to you being tempted with evil? Until Jesus came to the earth, he couldn't. The Bible says Jesus is our high priest. It says in Hebrews that we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Jesus can relate to you because he was tempted too, yet without sin. So in order for him to be a proper and appropriate mediator, high priest, go between, between you and God. He had to be able to experience, at least relate to, the human existence. So that's another reason that he came. The third reason that Jesus had to come to the earth and be made flesh was to give us an example. If God just worked out redemption some way or another, without Jesus coming to the earth, without the sacrifice, and without all the things that we know took place, 
how would we know how to live? How would we know what was expected of us? How would we know what belonged to us? Except through the example of Jesus, except through the revelation that Jesus gives us, gives us, gave us and gives us about God the Father, how would we know anything? And that's a huge thing. That's huge. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us is interesting because, uh, um, well, uh, I don't think I'm going to get any further than this one tonight, this verse tonight. Flesh is important because he had to be able to die. He had to be able to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, and he had to be able to be our example. The word made flesh is important because we see from John, not the other gospel writers, but we see more from John than anybody else, how that Jesus, let me give you a couple of examples. Jesus turned the water into wine. How did he do that? Did he throw something in the water and do some hocus pocus? No, he just simply commanded the servants to pour the water into jugs. By the way, this was not drinking water. They didn't have drinking water in those days because it was impure. This was the water that they washed feet with. Jesus turned bath water into wine. Just side note. Jesus told him to pour the water into, into certain jugs, certain containers, and he said, bear it to the governor of the feast. Jesus simply spoke words, and a transformation took place. John chapter 2 tells us about the nobleman's son who was healed. The nobleman comes to Jesus and says, come to my house and, and uh, uh, save my son. He's at the point of death. Jesus said, except you see signs and wonders, uh, you won't believe. So Jesus speaks to him. He gives him an opportunity to operate on his faith. He speaks to him and says, go your way, your son lives. What did he do? Well, the nobleman goes and, and on his way home, somebody meets him and says, your son is recovered. Asked him what time he recovered, and it was the same time, same hour that Jesus said, go your way, your son's okay. So he knew, because of that, he knew that something happened. But how did it happen? Jesus is in one place. The man has traveled a day, a day's journey to get to where he is. He goes back a half a day away, half a day later, and hears from somebody else in his house that that the servant is okay. What happened? Jesus didn't make the trip. What happened? Jesus spoke the word, and the transformation took place. A third example. It's what Jesus tells us about, uh, or what John tells us about in chapter 5, the man at the pool of Bethesda. Everybody's waiting for the angel to come down and trouble the water. First one into the water gets healed. Jesus walks up and says, Wilt thou be made whole? And the man starts making excuses. I don't have anybody to put me in the water. Other people are faster than me. Jesus says, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. What did he do? Did he touch him? No. Did he pray some special prayer? Was there a lightning bolt from heaven? Was there something that Jesus did, some activity that Jesus did? No, Jesus simply spoke. The man rose up and took his bed up and walked. Finally, John's the one that tells us in chapter 10, or chapter 11, I guess it is, about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. How did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? He waits till he's good and dead, been dead for three days. The three-day mark is important because that's when the Jews said it's too late now. The embalming process has taken place. It's finished and everything else. So Jesus goes and tells him to roll away the stone, stands there and calls Lazarus forth. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Does he go in and pick him up? Does he go in and minister to him and zap him with some special power that Jesus has got because he's the son of God? 
No, he speaks words. He says, Lazarus, come forth. What happened? Jesus is outside the tomb. Lazarus comes from within the tomb. By the way, the, the Jews learned to, to uh, um, embalm people from the Egyptians. He's mummified. He can't walk. How does he come out? Power of God sucks him out some way or another. Jesus says, loose him and let him go. He's still bound. He's been embalmed. Now, the embalming process is the draining of blood. God recreates blood in the guy somehow or another. How? How did that take place? Jesus simply spoke the word. Now, folks, here's an important point. At least it's important for me. I don't know if it's going to mean anything to you. But it seems to me, and I catch myself doing this so much. I catch myself imagining, considering, thinking that authority in the name of Jesus means you're going to somehow have power in and of yourself. And it never works that way. Jesus laid aside his inherent power when he came to the earth. Jesus is operating on the earth just like you and I operate, meaning he didn't have some surge of power that he can feel pulsing in his body. Wouldn't it be nice if, if, if uh, having an understanding of authority, who we are in Jesus, wouldn't it be nice if that meant we just felt charged up all the time? I mean, even if it was a limited supply, we'd learn to, to, to conserve it. So when we really need it, we could just point and zap somebody. Hopefully we'd zap them for good. But you know what I'm talking about. That's the way we would do it. John Lake talks about this. He said that there was a, a power of God that came on him at one time in his ministry. He said that whoever he'd point at, there would be like a flash of lightning that would come out of his fingers and knock him on the floor. He said he got to playing with that. Now, he didn't describe what playing with it was, was really meant, but he lost it because he didn't, take, uh, to, he didn't give it the proper respect. I don't know if he's quick drawing people or what. I, I don't know what's he, what he's doing. That's probably what I'd wind up doing, I, you know. Well, that's why God doesn't give it to me, I guess. But I've read stories like that, and, and you just think, yeah, that must have been what it was like with Jesus. Jesus was like a nuclear power plant just walking around pulsing all the time. But he couldn't have because he laid aside. If he'd come to the earth as he, in his form in the beginning... He could have done that, but he laid all that aside. He laid aside his inherent power and glory. That means Jesus operates the same way that you and I operate, and that is by the word. He was the word made flesh, meaning when he was flesh here on the earth, he had the nature of God, but he's operating simply by speaking words, and a transformation takes place from that point. That's how it works for us. And we get upset because we can't feel anything. Now, we know enough about, this, about the principles of faith to not let the lack of feeling or the absence of feeling really get us down. But we're all looking for feelings, aren't we? I lay hands on people. I'm looking to feel something. I'm always open to it. There are times when I do, and boy, I like it when I do. I don't know why I like it when I do, because I, really that's a hindrance in one respect, because then I'm thinking something really happened that time as opposed to what? When I don't feel it, nothing happens. Well, the word's the same. That's why it's important for us to recognize that it was the word made flesh, not God made flesh. Jesus is identified as the word made flesh. That means when you speak the words that he spoke, the same transformation and the same power is carried through. So the word was made flesh. 
Now the next thing is, and dwelt among us. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Um, now I'm, I, let, me, let me get through with this, and, uh, and then we'll pick up the rest of it next week. The word dwelt means tabernacled. The word tabernacle means tent. Jesus was a type, or I should say it the other way around, the tabernacle in the wilderness was a type of Jesus. Now, there are ten different things that the Bible tells us that were about the tabernacle of the wilderness that Jesus fulfilled. First of all, the tabernacle in the wilderness, you remember what that was? Maybe I'm taking some things for granted. Maybe I need to back up a little bit. When, uh, when Israel came out of uh, Egypt and God led them through the Red Sea on dry ground and the Pharaoh and his armies chased after them and uh, they were drowned in the Red Sea. There, were a, there was a period of a couple of years, uh, maybe up to, uh, up to five years, where they went in and camped around Mount Sinai. God caused the water to come out of the rock. Um, he fed them, began feeding them with manna, and did all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders. That was when Moses went up into the mountain and received the, t- the tablets of stone. And, the, and, and that wasn't all. That was when God gave him the, all 630 laws of the Old Covenant. All we know of is the tables of stone, but the laws were things that Moses came down and were written down. He would relate those to other people, and they were written down and so forth. And uh, during that period of time, the, um, uh, when Moses came down the first time, you remember the story, how that um, uh, he saw that the people had turned back to worshiping idols and so forth. And, and so he broke the tablets of stone, and boy, everybody, they knew we're in trouble now. Because the lightnings and everything was on top of the mountain, the, the, part of the reason is given why they went back to idol worship is they said nobody could live through this. It, so terrible it was that even if an animal came and touched the part of the mountain that wasn't, um, didn't have the, the rock wall around it, if it got through the rock wall, then they had to kill the animal and strike it through. Well, the people were afraid of that. While Moses was up there, one of the things God told him to do was uh, he gave him the plans for the tabernacle of the wilderness. Now, the tabernacle in the wilderness was this tent that was made from animal skins. Now, the, the, uh, the, the, the thing was very beautiful on the inside, but on the outside, it didn't look like much. And as a result, uh, he told him, gave him instruction about the Ark of the Covenant, and, uh, and this was used throughout the time that they were in the wilderness. It was intended to be a temporary thing. So the first thing is it's temporary. Now, one of the interesting things about the temporary nature of this is that you never see the tabernacle of the wilderness talked about once they crossed the Jordan River and went into the promised land. It was only for the wilderness. Only for the wilderness. And if you go back and look through the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, well, didn't show up till Exodus, but the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those are the five books of Moses. From uh, Deuteronomy on, where Moses dies and Joshua comes on the scene, it's called the tabernacle of the congregation, but it's not the same thing. It's specifically identified as taken apart. You remember that when they went, when Joshua led the children of Israel over into the promised land, they took the Ark of the Covenant and they, the priests stood with it on their shoulders in the middle of the, the uh, Jordan River and those waters parted just like the Red Sea had several years before. Remember? And it was only during the time they were in the wilderness that the Ark of the, that the, uh, the tabernacle of the wilderness was used. It was never used. Never set up again once they crossed over into the, the promised land. Now, folks, the tabernacle in the wilderness is a type of Jesus. If you look at it, it was used for less, for around about, or maybe a little bit less than 35 years. Well, that's about the length of time that Jesus lived, wasn't it? So the first thing was it was temporary. The second thing 
was that it wasn't used in, uh, in Canaan. It's called the tabernacle of the congregation in the promised land. And then David sets up a tabernacle. It's spoken of in 2 Samuel chapter 6, the tabernacle that David pitched, but that was not the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was specific for the time that they were in the wilderness. The time that they're in the wilderness is a type of the time that Jesus was here on the earth. The crossing over into the promised land was through Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection. That's the Jordan River. The third thing is, it didn't look like much from the outside. Inside, it was pretty. But outside, it was just boards and tents or or skins. It was just a tent. Well, Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus wasn't anything special to look at from the outside. There was nothing about his appearance that would make us draw ourselves to him. But boy, he was something on the inside, wasn't he? Just like the tabernacle of the wilderness. The, The fourth thing is, the tabernacle was God's dwelling place. Same with Jesus. The fifth thing is it was where God met with men. When Jesus came to the earth, that's how God met with men. The sixth thing is that he was, the tabernacle was the center of the camp of Israel, just like he's supposed to be the center of our lives. Everything revolved around him. The seventh thing is where the law was preserved. That's the same thing Jesus did. He fulfilled the law. The eighth thing is is where the sacrifice was made. The ninth thing is it's where the priests were fed. And finally, the tenth thing about the tabernacle of the wilderness that Jesus fulfilled was that it was a place of worship. So where it says that Jesus, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John is saying that he came to live within us. He came to live among us, just like the tabernacle was given in the Old Testament. Now, it goes from there and it says, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father. We beheld his glory. We beheld his glory. Now, in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory was, kid, was hidden. First, it was hidden in the, the uh, tabernacle of the wilderness. And then secondly, when David, uh, uh, when David gave instruction to, to Solomon and made all the plans, got all the plans from God and all the, the, uh, uh, the resources and so forth so that Solomon could build a temple, then the glory of God was hidden on, in the inside of that, the Holy of Holies. It wasn't something that people had an opportunity to see. There were occasions when the cloud would manifest, but by and large, it was hidden. But John is saying, we beheld his glory. We looked at him. We beheld him. Now, another thing you need to remember is in Exodus chapter 33, where Moses says to the Lord, he's talking to the Lord up on the mountain, and he says, show me your glory. You remember what God said? Now, God in that case was probably Jesus because Micah 5, 2 says that Jesus' going forth were from eternity, meaning Jesus didn't just come to the earth the first time when he was born in a manger. We assume, therefore, and I, I'm pretty well convinced of this, that it was uh, pre-existent appearances of Jesus when he talked to Moses out of the burning bush, when he walked with Adam in the Garden of Eden. All these things are Jesus. When he stands before Joshua and says he's captain of the Lord's host, that's Jesus. He tells him, take off your shoes. Well, angels don't do that. You don't have to take your shoes off from the presence of an angel. But Jesus was a different matter there. So all these things in the Old Testament, all these things that the, the, the Isaac wrestled with the angel. What angel was that? It's Jesus. I'm glad he lost because he received a blessing from that. All these things are a preexistent appearances of Jesus, more than likely. And so here where it says... We beheld his glory. Moses is asking for that. He's saying, show me your glory. He's probably talking to Jesus. Jesus is the one that gave the law. He's the creator. So he's the one that gives the law. So he asked, uh, asked God, show me your face and, or show me your glory. And you remember the answer? He says, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, but nobody can see my face and live. John's saying, we saw his face. 
Now, one of the things that was existing at the point in time that this was written in the early church, uh, I say early church, probably around 80 to 90 A.D., uh, John lived to be an old guy. And, uh, and so he witnessed some of these things. There was, uh, there was a group called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics has gotten to the place where they were accepting Jesus' teachings as fables. They thought that there was value in them. And, yeah, we need to, we need to, to accept these things and we need to follow them. But, but Jesus didn't really live. Well, John goes through the, the, the explanation. I saw him. I felt him. I touched him. I know him. And that's what he's saying here. And so this is a, a direct slap in the face to all those people that say Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. That's just a story. You have uh, religions that do that now. You've got a lot of things about Islam that will deny the humanity of Jesus and deny that he was the son of God. They'll say, well, this part was just a fable and this part's just a story. Because if you take away either the humanity or the divinity of Jesus, you're left with a religion that's equal to Islam or Buddhism or something else. It's the fact that Jesus was God and man that makes it different. And so it says, we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. Um, I'm going to hold off on the full of great. Well, maybe I won't. Let me show you. Let me show you a comparison. We'll see after I do this. Let me show you a comparison. Look at chapter one, verse one and chapter one, verse 14 and compare these things. Chapter 14 is the beginning. The, the first 13 verses are the summary, the introduction. Chapter four, uh, verse 14 of chapter one starts where John really get in, gets into who Jesus was and why. I want you to notice the comparisons. It says in verse 1, it says in the beginning was the Word. It tells where he was in the beginning. Verse 14 says, and the Word became flesh. It tells the beginning of his human life. Verse 1 says, and the Word was with God. It tells us where he was. And verse 14 says, and he tabernacled among us. It shows him with men. Verse 1 talks about him being with God and before the, the existing before with God. Verse 14 tells us about him coming to the earth. The third thing is, it says in verse 1, and the word was God. Verse 14 says he was full of grace and truth. In other words, it tells us what God is. Now, full of grace and truth, let me, uh, let me just, uh, let me hit one high spot here on this. Grace and truth is uh, going to be described in the next several verses as contrasting with the law. Here are a lot of people talking about grace and truth. Jesus said, he that's seen me has seen the Father. And John identifies Jesus as full of grace and truth. In other words, he identifies them both together. In other words, you can't have grace without truth as far as John is inspired to say by the Holy Ghost. Now, that didn't always go well in Jesus' ministry. For example, do you remember in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus is in the beginning of his ministry? Jesus goes to Nazareth where he had been brought up and he takes uh, the prophet Isaiah the writings of the prophet Isaiah, and he turns to what we know of as chapter 61. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted and so forth. Well, it says in Luke chapter 4 that the people, after Jesus finished reading, he sat down. And before he says anything else, it says all the people wondered at the gracious words which he spoke. They recognized, wow, there's something special about what this guy does. Look at the way he reads. And then Jesus gives them the truth. And the truth that he shares with them is, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. These scriptures are talking about me. Do you remember their response to that? They were filled with wrath. They took him out to the brow of the hill and they intended to cast him down headlong and to kill him. They were all for the grace. 
Not so much for the truth. John chapter 6 is another good example. John chapter 6 verse 26 tells about the multitudes that came and followed Jesus. And John tells us specifically that Jesus said, you're only here because you want more of the, the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. You heard of me multiplying the loaves and the fishes. You guys are just here for a free meal. Further in chapter 6, same crowd, same group, Jesus begins telling them some truths about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And what does it say after he tells them the truth? They're offended at him, and many of his disciples left him and wouldn't walk with him any further. What is it telling us? It's showing us something. It's showing us that a lot of people want the profit, want to profit from the grace of God. But when it comes to the truth, they're not too into that. Now, folks, that's still true today. you got a lot of the church world, and it seems maybe an increasing percentage of the church world, that they're hearing things about grace, and, oh, grace sounds great. But they turn back from the truth. As long as it's grace, as long as it's good news, as long as it's what Jesus has done for us, that's great. But, folks, freedom always carries responsibility. Jesus, who is the express image of the Father, is grace and truth. Not just grace. You've got some people nowadays that are talking about the full grace message. Well, you never hear them talking about grace and truth. Now, the Old Testament showed forth some grace and truth, too. There were examples of grace and truth in the Old Testament. For example, in Adam, Adam's situation after he and, uh, and Eve fell, they transgressed, uh, transgressed the commandment of God. What happened? It was the grace of God that provided a covering for him. But it was the truth of God that pronounced the sentence upon him to make him to expel him from the garden. What about the Passover? Here's grace and truth again. You've got the grace of God that provided a shelter under the blood, but it was the truth that required the innocent animal sacrifice to be made to provide that covering for them. So the Old Testament identified grace and truth in a number of ways, but Jesus is the one that fully revealed it. Because Jesus showed us that that's the character and the nature of God, not just grace, not just the truth. The law was the truth. Everything about the law was the truth, but it was unyielding. It revealed that the truth of God demanded righteousness. It demanded obedience, and the penalty for that was death, and the law is true. Paul gets into that when he talks to the Romans. He says it was the law, uh, wasn't the law perfect? If the law came from God and wasn't perfect, how could it be from God? No, the law was perfect. It just wasn't a complete revelation of who God is. Jesus The Bible says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. In other words, his divine, uh, his divine perfection as of the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one that's showing us who God really is. The Old Testament gave us information about God, but it couldn't show us who he is. Well, who is God? He's grace and truth. There is no freedom without responsibility, folks. None. Freedom carries responsibility. Spiritual freedom carries responsibility. Spiritual blessings carry responsibility. That's the truth. And truth doesn't change just because Jesus has come to the earth. God's truth is just as true now as it was in the Old Testament. Now we just get a full picture of it. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. As of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, okay, we'll pick up there next time and go a little bit further. Why don't we all stand? 
Well, as you can see, we've just covered the introduction. Two weeks and we're just through the introduction. Maybe I should be glad we're that far. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that Jesus gives us a perfect and complete picture of you. Thank you, Father, that you have blessed us in Christ Jesus with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We thank you, Father, that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus and that fullness is in us. Just as he prayed, we are in him and together we are in you. Us in him and us in you and you in us. Thank you, Father, that there's nothing that's too great for us. Nothing that's impossible to us because of the fullness of the life of God. We truly have received power by being born again. Power to be sons of God. Help us to live up to that, Father. Reveal it to us. Show us so that we can live up to it. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.